Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. The reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in the pretense or in the truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. To understand what's happening in this verse, we must remember the context that Paul is uh, uh, speaking to. Um, what people are he, is he talking about when he's talking about these groups that are preaching Christ? And we find that context just in the previous verse in Philippians 1.14, where it says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, Paul had been traveling across the known world, sharing the gospel, this good news of salvation, proclaiming Christ. To the Gentiles, and he made it as far as Rome, which was the epicenter of all human society at the time. But not everyone is thrilled by this proclamation of Christ that he's preaching, this Christ who's a stumbling block to the religious egos of the Jewish people and an offensive, exclusionary folly to the Gentiles around him. So they imprison him. Uh, he finds himself in prison, but in an unexpected turn of events, this persecution against Paul that he's enduring for preaching the gospel only further spreads the gospel as it emboldens the brothers in Christ to hear him and how he suffered for the gospel emboldens them to preach that same gospel. So why is this? Well, we learned from the previous passage, it's because faithful suffering authenticates the gospel's message. Paul's suffering for the gospel emboldened the onlooking brothers in Christ because it testified to them that Christ is worth suffering for, thus delivering them from the fear that keeps so many of us from proclaiming Christ, that keeps so many of us from sharing the good news. 
But when they saw Paul suffer, they said, I want that too. Not because they wanted to suffer, but because to them, seeing Paul suffer for the sake of Christ and spreading his message touched in their hearts this this unction, this desire to go make him known because if Paul's willing to go through that for Christ, then Christ must be pretty valuable. He must be something far more valuable than not being imprisoned, not suffering, living an easy life, not going through despair, not going through loneliness, not going through the trials of this world. If Paul is willing to give all worldly happiness up for a joy in Christ, even suffering for him, then Christ must be worth it. And it emboldened these brothers in Christ to go share that same word. So the very thing that the persecutors of Paul and the gospel wanted to not happen, what they wanted was to extinguish the gospel in their land, but they could only expand it. The enemy can only expand the gospel in his attempts to extinguish it. And with the preaching of the gospel becoming more and more popular, more and more people are doing it, right? That's, that's the good news. Um, unfortunately, though, there becomes more and more diversity among the motivations for why someone might want to preach the gospel. As we read in verse 15 again, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Evidently, there are some among this growing number of people, mostly Gentiles, people who, who believed in other pagan deities or, or, or uh, who believed in these cult religions that, that have now started preaching Christ and it's spreading. Some of them are preaching for the wrong reasons. Some with good motivations, though. And we'll touch on the, the bad motivations in a minute, but first let's focus on what goodwill, preaching from goodwill looks like. What accompanies goodwill preaching of the good news? In verse 16 it says, the latter, meaning those from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. We see here that Paul describes those who preach from goodwill as doing it out of love and according to a knowledge of something. Out of love knowing. Out of love according to knowledge. This love according to knowledge is actually exactly what Paul opened this whole letter praying for them. Back in verse 9 of Philippians 1, he says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That is to say, their intent in preaching was the same and in alignment with Paul's own heart for them. That it would be out of love according to truth according to a right knowledge of something about the gospel. So what is the right knowledge about the gospel they had? Well, this knowledge was of the purpose why Paul was suffering. 
This was the purpose of Paul's imprisonment that they knew, which gives us more insight to true gospel motivation. Knowledge that he was in prison for the defense of the gospel, verse 16. For the defense of the gospel. Now, this isn't merely just uh, telling us that they knew why Paul was imprisoned. They're not saying like they knew the charge that Paul was charged with, the crime that he was charged with, and that's why he was in prison. No, he was in prison for proclaiming Christ, for preaching Christ. And surely the false teachers, or, or rather the ones with the false motivations, knew that he was in prison for preaching Christ as well. But the ones who preach out of goodwill understood not that he was just in prison for preaching Christ, but that there was a sovereign purpose he was in prison to defend the gospel. Rather, when it says he was put there to defend the gospel, it's speaking of God's purpose to his suffering. His purpose behind his imprisonment. To defend the authenticity of the gospel. Because when someone is willing to go through trials and tribulation, and their faith remains, and they remain steadfast, that is a signal to the world saying Christ is worth it. This gospel, this good news, this hope for an everlasting life and joy in Christ is worth anything in this world. Interesting enough, uh, this word for put here, it's a Greek word, kaime, it's used elsewhere in scripture and it's never really translated as put. It usually is referring to someone's specific calling, appointing, or even destining by God himself. For example, when Simeon uh, witnesses Jesus in the temple, baby Jesus in the temple, he says to his mother Mary in Luke 2.34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed, same word, he is put, he is appointed by God for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Or when Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, to encourage them in their suffering and pain and trials. He says that he's sending Timothy to them so that, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined, same word for this, destined for this. The Roman guard, the people who arrested Paul for preaching Christ, did not destine Paul to anything. They did not appoint him. They did not give a purpose to him. Christ is the one who gave a purpose to Paul's persecution. Christ is the one who still cared for Paul, who, who still had a purpose behind what Paul was going through. Because Paul understood that Christ was worth it. So we know here that put there for the defense of the gospel is more than it's just a charge. It is bearing witness of Christ through what Paul was suffering through. 
And it was the very reason he was in prison. And this is something that Paul is saying that the preachers of goodwill understood. How do you know your motivations are in line, how they're supposed to be when preaching the gospel, doing anything in the name of Christ, serving in the church, loving your brother? How do you know it's in the, it's in the right motivation? Well, it's out of love according to the knowledge that Christ is worth everything. He is worth everything. He is preeminent above any of our own individual desires. He is our desire. And they understood this. Paul understood this. And you can't help but, but uh, think that the words of Jesus in Luke 21, verses 12 through 13, must have been ringing through his memory as he wrote this, which has Jesus saying this to his disciples in verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Paul saw his imprisonment, his persecution as opportunity to bear witness, and so did these other faithful brothers and preachers of Christ. This is why Paul could write in Philippians 1.13 about his imprisonment. It was so that it can become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. That was the purpose so they would know it was for Christ. And this is because Christians endure hardship. When Christians go through the painful trials of this life and their faith is kept and they still stand leaning only on the promises of God to keep them and sustain them even to the day of Christ Jesus, he who is able to keep you from stumbling, he is faithful, he will surely do it. When that's the heart of the Christian who's enduring trials, it testifies, it bears witness, it gives opportunity to bear witness to the rest of the world on looking that Christ is still worth it all. This is something that these preachers he's talking about evidently understood. So we're presented here with a threefold test for our motivations, whether in, they're in line with the true motivations for gospel ministry, that they are accompanied by love that's according to knowledge that's willing to suffer for Christ's sake, knowing that he is worth it. Unfortunately, though, that's not the case for, for everyone who preached Christ. As verse 17 goes on to tell us, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. To inflict me, afflict me in my imprisonment. The, the original language there gives this idea that they are trying to press upon the chains deeper into his hands. The bonds, the chains, they want to press them into Paul's hands. They want to hurt Paul 
through the preaching of the same gospel Paul preached? It's hard to imagine a scenario where that's even possible. In contrast to the pure motivation of self-sacrifice, others are driven by self-promotion to preach Christ. The dark reality of ministry is that there are many who preach Christ for the wrong reasons, for selfish motives. As this culture of Christianity is spreading, more and more teachers are lifted up within the church, some well-intentioned, some looking to build a reputation for themselves, probably some that were really smart, who knew the scriptures, who had a good theological mind even, that were sharp on their feet, who could say the right things and were well-educated, eloquent, affluent speakers and noticed that when they preached, they would get a lot of head nods, they'd get a lot of amens, they would get a lot of response from people, and they thought to themselves, I'm pretty good at this. This is something that I can do. This is something where I can get praise from other people. And their motivation was to lift up themselves under the guise of lifting up Christ. Now, we'll never know exactly the precise details that were going on here and how they wanted to afflict Paul in his chains. But it's not hard to imagine a scenario where Paul, being like the main guy, the first one going out there and spreading this gospel, he's a well-beloved figure and there's jealousy that could rise up against that from people who are preaching Christ in vain, who are preaching Christ for the wrong reasons. And now that he's out of the way, now that he's in prison and out of the public eye, it gives more opportunity for these other up-and-coming, up-and-coming envious malintentioned preachers to be platformed as the next celebrity pastor. Wanting to make a name for themselves out of jealousy to the great success of Paul's ministry to that point. And even hoping that Paul gets word of these circumstances and in return shows jealousy as well. We see the characteristics of poor motives for preaching being accompanied, being accompanied by selfish ambition, insincerity, pretense, and even malintent toward other Christians. When you work for Christ, what is your intentions? What are ours? Do we work unto the praise of man to be seen by man, to get glory from man? Or do we work as unto the Lord? When the Pharisees did this, Christ said, you know, let them have the best seats in the synagogues. Let them be heard for their many words and repetitious prayers. Let them get the glory of man. He says, they have their reward. But you don't do that. Don't settle for the cheap glory of man when you have the favor of God. Why is the glory of man not worth it? Because it's fleeting. When Jesus said they have their reward, he wasn't saying that that was a good thing. He is saying they have their reward in this life. 
They have all the amens. They have all the, that was such a blessing to me. They have all the, wow, he's so smart. She's so smart. They're so good. They know the Bible so well. They have all of that in this life, but they do not have me in the next. They have their reward. You will receive yours. But notice the text says that they were thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They weren't successful. He had no care for his own reputation or what others taught or what others thought about him, rather. There was only one thing preeminent in his mind. You know, when he's uh, writing to the church in Galatia, he says that he's not trying to Please, man, for if he did, he would not be a minister of Christ. There was only one thing that actually mattered to Paul, and there's no amount of rivalry or deceit or malintentions that could drive Paul down to the depth of jealousy and envy and rivalry in return because there was only one thing that mattered to him, and we can find that in Philippians 1.18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. He says, I rejoice. How could Paul rejoice at this? I understand how Paul could rejoice at the good-willed preachers, those who were willing to suffer for Christ, those who had good intentions, those who did it out of love according to true knowledge, spirit, and truth. I can rejoice in that. I can rejoice when I see a pastor preach a sermon, not thinking of himself, but only lifting up Christ. I can appreciate, I can rejoice when I see a servant of the Lord serving other peoples in the name of Christ and doing it not out of selfish ambition, but self-sacrificing service in the name of the Lord. I can get behind rejoicing in that. But, Christ, but Paul is saying that he rejoices even when Christ is proclaimed. In pretense, meaning not sincere. These are men who are preaching from selfish ambition, rivalry, envy, affliction, pretense, insincerity, and he rejoices in their preaching. This is a far different response than what we see in Paul's other letters when addressing his, his opponents. Take, for example, his letter to the Galatians. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he's addressing these people who have slipped into the church and start teaching out of rivalry, I'm sure, out of bad motivations, out of, out of insincerity, out of selfish gain, very similar but they try to hijack the church and they change the message. Instead of Christ being proclaimed, they say, Christ plus these works. Not faith alone, 
not grace alone, but these things you must do. These laws you must abide by in order to be right with God. And he says to them, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you've received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. It means damned. Let any other gospel, any other message other than Christ being proclaimed be accursed. That's a far different response. What's the difference? Both the the false teachers in Galatia and these malintentious Preachers in this have selfish motivations, yet Paul rejoices in the one and curses the other. It's because the Galatians were preaching another gospel. These preachers, whether they believe this gospel in their heart or not, they were preaching the true gospel. And that's ultimately what mattered to Paul. He was obsessed with the gospel of Christ. This is the same message that fell upon him and made the scales from his eyes drop and when he was finally able to see, he used to believe like a Galatian. He used to abide by the letter of the law thinking that being a good person could save him. Being a religious man could make him love before God and he was saved out of that to the gospel of the free grace of Christ and his name being proclaimed. So he curses anything else than that. And he can endure and take on the burden of even bad preachers preaching a true message. It testifies to the fact that the gospel of Christ lies not in the power of any man who's preaching it. But rather, the power of Christ is in the Christ he is proclaiming. The power of the gospel resides not in man, but in the God who the gospel is about. Don't get me wrong, Paul doesn't think that poor motives are insignificant. He's not okay with them preaching out of rivalry and, and, uh, and having these malintentions in his mind. In chapter 2, verse 3, he goes on to say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So he addresses that sin directly. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. He, he's not okay with selfish motivations. But what he's saying is, I can't control these guys, okay? But I praise the Lord, the gospel is being preached. It tells much of God's power alone in the efficiency of the gospel that he can speak through even the foolishness of man's sinful intentions as long as it is the true gospel being preached. Just as the rocks will cry out for the glory of God, and Balaam's donkey can give the word of the Lord, God needs no man for his gospel to be true. 
I like to say that God can use and has used a donkey to preach if he wants to. But that doesn't mean we put donkeys in our pulpits. If I was using the KJV, I would use a far more offensive phrase. But it goes to show that the gospel message itself and its power, the proclamation of Christ himself, holds all the power behind salvation, not to be dependent on any man. If you hear the gospel and you believe in it and you're saved, and then 10 years down the line, the preacher who preached to you apostatized and says, I'm an atheist, I never really believed, does that mean you're no longer saved? Does the power reside in the man who's preaching the gospel, or does he use unworthy vessels to do his bidding? I hear a lot about the anointing of preachers, the anointing. He has the anointing. He's, he's especially gifted. Oh, she has an anointing. And it's true. Uh, uh, the Spirit anoints us with spiritual gifts. But none of those spiritual gifts are as powerful as the gospel itself. I can be as gifted as possible, but if I preach another gospel, it only damns people. So it's true in saying that the power of the gospel lies in Christ proclaimed, in his name, in his word, in his power itself. And in that, Paul can rejoice. Paul is essentially saying, so what? So what if these are not sincere people preaching? So what? Is Christ proclaimed? Is the true Christ and his message of salvation by grace through faith alone being preached? Then that's all that matters. They can try to get under my skin all they want, but the message of salvation is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is because Christ proclaimed is not a proclamation ultimately made by man but by God himself. What do I mean by that? Think about that phrase, Christ proclaimed. It's kind of a motif in scripture. You see it over and over again. The name of the Lord proclaimed. This is what the prophets did. This is what the apostles did in the gospels. This is what Christ himself did in the gospels. The apostles did in the letters, rather. And, and this idea of the name of the Lord, Christ being proclaimed, it's found elsewhere in Scripture. And it's funny to see how it works out and plays out not as being dependent on the instrument it's being uh, uh, vehicled and brought to and transported by, but rather God himself. In Exodus 34, God is about to show some of his glory to Moses. He's about to reveal his glory to Moses. And he says in 34 verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Who proclaimed the name of the Lord? Did he come down and say, okay, I'm waiting for you, Moses. Proclaim my name. Tell me what my glory is. No, the Lord came down and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
when Christ is proclaimed, the power within it, he might use a human mouth to say it, but the truth that's communicated is from the Lord himself, not the power of man. So the Lord descends and proclaims the name of the Lord. The truthfulness of the gospel is not subject to the intentions of the person speaking it, but rather the power lies within who the gospel is about. When the gospel is truly proclaimed, when Christ is proclaimed, it is the Lord himself who speaks it. This was Paul's problem with the false teachers of Galatia. They preached a false gospel from man, not of Christ. And what is the Lord's proclamation of himself? When he's going to reveal his glory to Moses, and he says, I'm going to proclaim my name to you, Moses. What does he say? What is his name? What is the proclamation of the Lord? Well, in verse 6 of Exodus 34, it says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Paul could rejoice despite the intentions of these preachers because the proclamation of the name of Christ is proclaiming the good news of the gospel. As God reveals his glory, he reveals the good news that he forgives sins. The proclamation of the name of Christ is revealing that through Christ, God can forgive your sin. We see a, an issue here in this verse, though, right? He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, steadfast love forever, you know, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What does that mean? It's all just, he forgives your sin, but it ends with kind of, a, kind of a weird turn here. But who will by no means clear the guilty? I thought you just said you would clear the guilty. I thought you said that you'll forgive iniquity. You'll forgive transgressions. You'll pass over sin. You'll no, by no means clear the guilty. To forgive sins is to clear the guilty. To forgive a sin, you must be guilty of a sin. So when the Lord, when God proclaims himself to Moses, he says, I will forgive sin. I am slow to anger. I am a forgiving God. This is my glory shown to you. But I will by no means clear the guilty. When Christ is proclaimed, he solves this great mystery. How can God forgive sin and also not let sin go unpunished? The answer is found in what Paul is rejoicing about. Christ. 
Christ's substitutionary death on the cross in our place is the only way in which God's proclamation of himself as forgiving sins, but also keeping sins held accountable for, as true. In Romans 3, verse 23, it puts it like this. Paul's writing to the church of Rome, and he says this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is about to show his glory to Moses. And he does it by proclaiming himself to him. And he proclaims himself by saying, I'm going to forgive sin. Here Paul says, we have sinned. We have fallen short of that glory. Fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is a really big word. Break it down. There is a problem if God is just so loving and just forgives sin without any payment. He would be a corrupt judge. He would be saying, This law that you've broken is no big deal. As a matter of fact, I don't really care at all. And you can't trust the morality of a God like that. That is not a just judge of the universe. You would say that that judge is just as sinful as the perpetrator who broke the law. So God, in his divine courtroom, which we will all stand before one day, looks at us and says, I will by no means clear the guilty. There has to be a punishment there has to be a price paid. He can't just pass over the sins and act like they didn't happen. But in the same light, he is abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiving the transgressions of thousands, wiping away all of our sin. How does he do this? It's out of his great love for you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So God, knowing in his nature he must punish sin, but in his great love for you, sends his son down. Lives a perfect, sinless, blameless life. And dies on the cross, not just taking a physical death. Blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the Bible says. But also, the scriptures say that he took the wrath of the Father on our behalf. He took a spiritual cup of wrath worth an eternity in hell for us. On the cross was buried, and then rose again three days later, sealing our atonement. And in that, he propitiated, or he appeased the wrath of God. 
Out of God's love for you, he gave you a substitute. It says, are justified by his grace in Romans. By his grace as a gift. It must be a gift. You can't say, I'm going to have Jesus die for me, but I'm going to be a good enough person from here on out. I am going to earn my way into heaven. That's not how it works. We've all fallen short of the glory of God when we've sinned. God is holy and perfect and deserves our perfection. So much so that even the slightest little sin is being sinned against an infinitely God who deserves infinite obedience, making our little tiny sins infinitely huge. So if it's 99% grace and 1% how good of a Christian I am, 1% how good I can perform this religious duty, then we'll all end up in hell. Because God cannot pass over sins without a substitute. The good news is he provided that substitute in the cross. Where we fall short, Christ stands tall. Where we have sinned, he has upheld righteousness. And when we repent and believe in the gospel, when we turn from our sin, not meaning I'm going to live sinlessly now to earn God's favor, but because he died for me and he's freely given me his favor. I'm going to turn from my sin and desire to follow after him in belief, in faith that he died for my sin. We are given his righteousness because we give him our sin on the cross. Moving on in the Romans passage, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received By good works, by church attendance, by giftedness and anointing, by the best of intentions, no, received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's goodness, who he is, his moral perfection. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And he can't just do that. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, his justice upheld. He doesn't just think sin is no big deal. The just and the justifier, meaning still loving enough to forgive your sin, to justify you in the presence of God. The just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Once you believe in that story, once you believe that Jesus died in your place, once you believe that he was good enough when we were sinful and all of our sin was cast upon him and all of his righteousness were given, was given to us and he raised from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father, once you believe that, The Bible says you are justified, meaning that when God sees you 
if you believe in the gospel, he sees the perfection of his son. Because when he saw his son on the cross, he saw the sinfulness of our hearts. Paul was able to rejoice because the proclamation of Christ was no message of man, but the divine plan put forward out of God's love to redeem for himself a people. Now, I feel like I must apologize for the, the hypocrisy of preachers. For whether well-meaning, well-intended, or not well-meaning, sinful intent and selfishness. God's church has hurt many people. Me being one. The hypocrisy of preachers of Christ does much damage, which is why Paul will go on to say, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Consider others as more significant than yourselves. And I feel like I must take the the moment to apologize for anything someone has done to hurt or harm you or someone you know in the name of Christ. But I also want to plea with you to not hold the hypocrisy of preachers against Christ's name. Don't Hold it against the name of Christ. Because it's not their message. The message of the gospel is the message of the Lord proclaiming himself in grace. His plan to forgive sins, uphold his justice out of his love for you. Repent and believe in this message. Be forgiven and justified in his sight. Able to rejoice with Paul that Christ is proclaimed. Let's pray.